So I'll be trying something new tonight, so this can go either really well or really badly. And effectively, I do not have my sermon, uh, I do not have my sermon printed, and so I am going off my phone. I have a phone with a decent screen, so we'll see how we go. And uh, as I said, this can go really either good or really badly. Um, so with that said, why don't I open up in prayer because I may need it. I always do. So let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you uh, for, the t- again, the fact that we can always lift up our petitions to you. We just pray for now as we delve into your word. Father, we just pray, keep tightness at bay, especially as we go into the evening. Uh, Father, we just pray that we may be singularly focused upon your word, but not in a way where we simply are just hearers. Help us to be those who seek to apply your word into our own lives as, uh, as we need, Father. So we just pray for the ministering of the Spirit. In this capacity, Father, we just pray for my uh, for technology at the moment, and uh, well, Father, I just pray for this to go uh, seamlessly. So, just commit all this to you now in Your Son's most blessed name, Amen. Alrighty, I, I encourage and invite you to keep your Bibles open as as we delve into Galatians three, um, as we've been going through uh, the letter to the Galatians in the evenings. We'll, we're currently at verses uh, six to nine, so verses six to nine. So just to keep you up to date as to where to look at exactly tonight. So when, so effectively, when we, um, before we delve into into the word, though, it's just always helpful to understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments because Christians, for a very long time, have debated how the Old Testament relates to the New, and specifically its purpose, its point and how those under the Old Testament were indeed saved before the coming of Christ. Unfortunately, as Christians have delved and wrestled with this over the last two millennia, there has been several misunderstandings which have arose with firstly the idea, unfortunately, that God has has several or two plans. Plan A with Israel and then plan B with Jesus and the church. Or that the Old Testament and the New Testament have nothing to do with each other, that the Old is for the Jew and the Jew alone, whereas the New is for the Gentile. However, let me, of course, exhort that the Bible is one book. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal a single plan of redemption, and that is for both Jew and Gentile. And that is through Jesus Christ and is to be received by faith alone. Now, as we return to the letter to the churches of Galatia this evening, in its pages we may recall several things. The first is, of course, that the church had a problem. It had a problem of individuals coming in, so-called Judaizers, who had come in and started teaching that the faith in Jesus was not enough. It wasn't sufficient. Instead, to become a follower of Jesus, one had to become what? A Jew first, undertaking the act of circumcision so that then they could become a Christian. And then so, unfortunately, salvation, rather than being an act of God, that we, through a faith that is given by divine grace, receive it becomes now down to our own actions, our works. Instead of reliance on God, 
it becomes reliance upon man. And the sad thing is, the church, or the churches rather, at Galatia ought to have known better. Paul, after all, had spent time with them. He had taught them all this. But now they had become bewitched. They had taken down, they had gone down the wrong path, taken astray by false teachers. And this is where Paul wants to remind them. He wants to wave his arms before them and let them know what they're actually doing. As Paul states in Galatians 3 verse 3, so just to backtrack a little tiny bit, are you so foolish that after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Do we rely, Paul is asking, do we rely upon God only at the start of our salvation and then take matters up for our own hands? Like, so God starts the, uh, our salvation, but we finish it. We make sure we are actually saved. Paul says, surely not, surely not, because it is by believing what we have heard. It's by trusting, by faith in Christ that we are actually saved. And so it is from here, from verse 6, that Paul now starts addressing the actual theological arguments that the Judaizers has started teaching. Now, after establishing his credentials in the first two chapters and reminding the Galatians as to how they became Christians to begin with, Paul now seeks to show that what he has taught to begin with, when he had spent time with them earlier, what he had taught with them was, had been faithfully derived from Scripture. And so after reminding them that they were saved and had experiences of the Spirit before any attempts at doing the works of the law, he then continues that they, that is the Galatians, they were saved because they simply believed just as Abraham did. And so Paul's, Paul's line of thought here goes all the way to Abraham. He's seeking to, again, establish his position right there in the Old Testament. And again, if, and this is important for several reasons. The first is that who Abraham was. Now, this could, I could have easily turned this into a character study and went, let's just focus on Abraham. And that probably would have been a profitable exercise, but that, that's not what I'm doing tonight. But again, Abraham was seen as a patriarch. He was a father of the Jews and of Israel. And although Abraham lived prior to the foundation of Israel as a nation, Abraham was seen rightly, rightly, as the main person in whom God's great blessings flowed through to Israel. God had, after all, for those who remember Abraham and his life, and when, before he became Abraham, it was Abram, um, who had been caught out of Ur in Chaldea. He had been promised. Uh, he had prom been promised to him, as we read in Genesis 12, by God, when God says to him, "I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So that was Genesis 12. 
Furthermore, as Genesis, the pages and chapters of Genesis progress, Genesis 15, God further promises Abraham what? An heir. An heir that he will have, and that he will have descendants that are numerous. And to confirm that, God does what? He makes a covenant with Abraham that it will be so. That all his promises are indeed going to happen because God has covenanted with Abraham. And then later in Genesis 17, he continues and God makes a further covenant whereby God promises that Abraham will be the father of many nations and uh, that a particular offspring of his, a particular group of his will receive the land of Canaan and he will be that group's God. Now this was effectively the establishment of the foundation of Israel. And so that Jews recognized that it was only by Abraham that they were recipients of the promises of God because God had promised Abraham. They, being the descendants of Abraham, had been the recipients of those promises. Consequently, being a child of Abraham was seen by the Israelites, by the Jews, as a mark of national and religious identity because God had made promises to Abraham because God had covenanted with Abraham and that covenant extended to all the descendants. The Israelites, as the descendants of Abraham, saw themselves as being the recipients of the promise, being the recipients of the covenant. And so they identified themselves with Abraham. So many Jews at this time derive their spiritual worth and their proximity to God simply from this physical lineage that they had. They saw themselves as spiritually safe because why? Because they were physical descendants of Abraham. And this is constantly seen, not, not just from what I'm saying, but constantly seen through encounters in the New Testament. Where, where many, many through the life of Jesus neglect or oppose what he, what Jesus is saying about things such as the impending judgment of what is to come or about the assertion that they were not acting in a way which was faithful to God or even the fact that they themselves, that is the Jews, needed salvation. They opposed it. And why was that? Because every time these teachings arose. The pushback was because that they didn't need to listen or these teachings didn't apply to them because of their physical ancestry. Now this mentality is not only seen in, of course, the encounters with Jesus, and I'll touch on a few in a moment, but the mentality is seen from, really, the encounters of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is baptizing individuals and when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to the baptism in John in Matthew 3, John then exhorts them, who are you and why are you fleeing the wrath which is to come? Repent, do good works to show your faithfulness, right? to, to live consistent and faithful lives. And don't presume, and this is, where, uh, this is a quotation from Matthew 3, 9, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Reliance on one's bloodline was not sufficient. 
Or likewise in John 8, Christ is admonishing a group which were following him and that had come to, uh, when he had said to them that he had come to set them from the enslavement of sin. In John 8.33, they go, well, what do you mean? We are already free. We are descendants of Abraham. Later on, when Jesus pushes back against that assertion in verse 38-39, they go, our father is Abraham. Can you already see a pattern? One of the constant fallbacks here was a constant reliance on their bloodline, a constant reliance on their physical descendancy from Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. Now, Jesus, in, in that in that actual passage in John 8, chapter 8, Jesus actually tells them that the way that they're acting, because they wanted to kill him, the Jews wanted to kill him, he actually says, well, your actions, despite what you're saying, that you're the, you're the children of Abraham and that you have Abraham as your father, your actions and your behavior actually more closely to a father, all right, but your father is of the devil. Your father is the devil based on your behavior, based on your actions. That is truly your spiritual parentage. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of Jesus' day, they did not comprehend and they did not want to comprehend that they couldn't simply cruise by on their physical parentage or their outward behavior and works. They couldn't comprehend that God didn't, and we've heard it many times, right? God doesn't want your outward actions. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your outward obedience. He wants your heart. He wants your, he wants your faith. He wants you to trust him. Yes, these outward actions aren't necessarily bad, but if divorced from the inward reality which should be driving them, then they're all for naught. However, relying on the promises, the promises that were given to Abraham was seen as, as sufficient by so many Jews at this point. Our father's Abraham, we can just do as we please. All a self-respecting Jew had to do was to ensure that they had themselves, well, but particularly their children circumcised, their, their male children circumcised. And then by doing so, they could count on the promises of Abraham's blessings being extended to themselves. That's all a self-respecting Jew had to do. I just make sure I'm circumcised and my male children are circumcised. Because you see, in Genesis 17, Genesis 17, what the mark, the covenant that God made with Abraham, what was the symbol of that? What was the what was the sign that signified the covenant? Circumcision, right? If a physical descendant was not circumcised after all, and you can read more in detail in Genesis 17, if a physical descendant was not circumcised, then what would happen? They would be cut off from the covenant. And presumably they would lose all the covenantal blessings. And this is undoubtedly some of the mindset that the Judaizers had. These Judaizers who had come into the church at Galatia, they probably had this type of mentality that, well, well, if you're not getting circumcised, you're not part of the Abrahamic covenant. If you're not part of the Abrahamic covenant, you're not going to get the blessings. You're not part of the covenant, which matters. But see, by Paul referring 
that Abraham simply believed in our verses tonight, in verses 6, he's pointing out to the Galatians that the patriarch of the patriarch of Israel, he simply believed. He simply believed. And what happened? Well, quoting Paul, quoting Genesis 15, chapter 15, verse 6, says the Lord credited Abraham's belief as righteousness. So, did Abraham do anything to earn this righteousness? This being made right by God. Was it gained by his merit? Was it gained by his work? No, it wasn't. As Paul also states elsewhere, because this is a common motif in Paul, in Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, this crediting of righteousness, being made right with God, That was prior to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 17. The Judaizers, they loved pointing to chapter 17 going, well, chapter 17, this covenant, part of being part of that covenant is you need to become circumcised. But what Paul is pointing at is going, let's go back a bit. Let's go back a bit before Genesis 17 actually occurred. Before any action, before any actions could be taken before there were any acts of obedience without any mentioning of of Abraham upholding the law before any act of circumcision what do we see it was all by faith just as Abraham had left even earlier than Genesis 15 when he left Ur out of faith in Genesis 12 so too here in Genesis 15 all Abraham did was believe God when the promise was given to him. All he did was believe and trust. And this is what Paul's getting at here. Paul's getting saying that Abraham believed. He All he did was believe and he was made righteous. He was made justified. And so to the Galatians, well, they were made righteous by faith, not by any outward activity, not by any outward merit or mark, and this salvation, this being made right with God, this was not reliant on any act of circumcision. No, it was faith. It was faith that made people true children of Abraham. Not physical actions. As Paul states in Galatians 3, 7, you know then, that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. So despite the, the fact that everybody used to use, all the Jews used to go, well, our father is Abraham, so we can cruise by based on this physical lineage. Paul's actually is going here and going, the true children of Abraham are those who are in the mold of Abraham, believe like Abraham. While these Judaizers believed that the Gentiles needed to become covenant members of the Abrahamic covenant in order to become righteous, Paul points out that Abraham's salvation actually precedes the covenant. It precedes the covenant itself. Chapter 15 precedes, after all, 
chapter 17, unsurprisingly. Now, Paul wants to correct any misgivings or thinking to the contrary, because in some ways, again, it seems pretty self-concluding that Genesis 15 happened before Genesis 17, so we can see that, of course, Abraham was saved by faith before a covenant was made. But see, Judaism of this period, Judaism, or what we call Second Temple Judaism, was one that saw intrinsically one's righteousness as being tied up to one's works, despite N.T. Wright. Um, That in reality, one's works, right, that one's works can merit righteousness. But the reality is, as we all know, that cannot be the case. And why is that? Because of the state of mankind. The sad reality that Abraham, and this is why I said it might have been profitable to do a character study of Abraham, but Abraham's own profile, if you look at Abraham's own life, right, that his understand, the understanding of Abraham as we know was not necessarily the understanding of Abraham during this period. Because rather than being a representative of exercising faith in God, Abraham became an illustration as to how one can merit their own salvation. You see the distortion and the warping happening there. Some rabbinic sources, and I was going through a number of um, rabbinic sources. I do not understand Hebrew, so uh, I was reading translated into English. But um, but some rabbinic sources assert that he's right standing before God. It wasn't simply that he believed and it, the Lord credited it to him as righteousness, as in it was a gift from God. No, according to these sources, right, the right standing before God was not a gift. It was something he had to earn. Likewise, likewise there's, uh, there's a number of other uh, rabbinic sources which talk about Abraham having to do seven or a number of tests in order to become righteous, but 1 Maccabees, which uh, if you're familiar with the Apocrypha, so 1 Maccabees, it's, right, uh, it's uh, one of the Apocrypha books written uh, right before the conquest of that er- uh, area by the Romans. But 1 Maccabees uh, 2.52 says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned, uh, reckoned to him as righteousness? Inferring, of course, that the righteousness was reckoned to Abraham based on him passing a test. So it wasn't gifted by God. It was based upon his works. But see, that's, of course, a warped distortion. But this was a warped distortion that Paul had to deal with. Abraham was not meant to be seen as someone who reflects how one can merit their own salvation. But instead, Abraham was meant to be seen as someone who reflects how one ought to respond to God, which is in faith. You see, mankind is called to be reliant. We are called to be reliant. We're dependent beings. But we're not called to be reliant upon our own works. We're not called to be dependent on, upon our own ability. We're called to be dependent upon whom? God. 
And this is precisely it. That mankind could not rely upon themselves. This is why we needed salvation. It's why we needed rescuing from the bondage of sin that we've inherited from our first parents. And it's about this rescue, it's about this planned redemption that unfolds from Scripture. And we've heard it many times from this pulpit. Where are the seeds of redemption? Where do they start? Genesis 3.15, right? And, and that is from Genesis 3.15, and as it unfolds throughout the rest of Scripture, that we start seeing the plan of redemption, how God will reconcile humanity to himself, right? Not, and as each page goes past, as each book of the Old Testament goes by, we see with more and more clarity as to the scope and the nature of the Redeemer who is to come. We see that there will be indeed a good news that there will be a Redeemer who will come to rescue people from their sin. And this was not something, this plan of redemption was not something limited to the Israelites. It was to be for all people, for all of all nations. Thus Paul tells us in, in verses 8 in Galatians 3, Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. See, Israel was never meant to be just a plan A for God, whereby Christ in that failed, so now we've got Christ in the church as plan B. Now Israel was meant to be the medium of which, and for which the purpose of redemption would come to fruition. The Savior, of course, would come through the Jewish nation. And believing Gentiles would be what? They'll be added to God's people. Which until that time, God's people were whom? Largely believing Jews. With a a couple of uh, sporadic amount of, uh, of Gentiles added a good mix. But the Gentiles from this point would be grafted on. And the way of becoming part of God's people was what? How did one become part of God's people? By faith. By faith. By the same, very same instrument. Regardless if it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. One became a child of God through the instrumentality of faith. It was faith, 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 regardless of the old covenant or the new. And Abraham believed and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. But the problem is the Judaizers, they came in. And what did they want to do? They wanted to get the Gentiles and they wanted to drag them back to the Old Covenant. And while certainly the Abrahamic Covenant, there's no doubt that the Abrahamic Covenant pointed to Christ, it pointed to him. We need to understand that the promise of God, that, that God gave to Abraham, that promise that he gave preceded that covenant. That covenant, yes, it encapsulated that promise, but the promise itself was not limited by that covenant. But through the coming of Christ, the old covenant, of which the Abrahamic covenant was a part of, had now reached its purpose, its climax. And what was that? Bringing forth the Savior. And what, through Christ, a new covenant 
had come. It's almost as if the old, co- the old covenant in many ways was this, uh, being the, the fact that, of course, containing all of God's people, those who truly believed, those who were truly true children of Abraham, that, that, that people of God in the old covenant, that scaffolding came off and the new covenant was there. And now new people were going to be grafted in. Or, to put it as probably better, the writer, uh, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 8.13, by saying a new covenant, he has declared the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about the pass away. Paul's insistent here that if one understands Abraham's role correctly in redemptive history, that one would understand that Abraham was just like everyone else. A sinner that needed God. After all, Abraham doubted God's faithfulness. If we go through, like I said, a quick, we'll do a quick character profile of Abraham right here, of all the, the kind of misfortunes or the kind of spiritual defects of Abraham. But again, if we looked at Abraham, he doubted God's faithfulness in Genesis 15, 2-3. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house? Uh, and the heir of my house is Elise of Damascus. Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. So he doubted God's uh, faithfulness. Abraham and Sarah, as we know, they connected uh, together to bring forth uh, God's promise involving, of course, Hagar. Abraham lied to King Abimelech. He was, and he was rebuked by an unbelieving pagan at that for lying. It's pretty clear that Abraham is not lifted up in the Old Testament as a perfect or sinless individual. He is a sinful person just like us. But furthermore, if they were to understand Abraham's position within redemptive history, they would understand that the true children, the true children of Abraham are not simply the physical children. Which, whilst, of course, being physical descendants, they are children from a posterity perspective, they're not truly children from a spiritual perspective. As Paul states in Galatians 3.7, you know then, that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. If a Jew was to be reliant upon their circumcision, upon their external works, then Paul is clear they aren't true children of Abraham. You may even argue, to use Jesus' own language in John, now, if they're reliant on their own works and their own ability and not reliant or dependent upon God, that they are indeed, instead, children of the devil, as all of us are who don't believe in God. If you want to be a child of Abraham, then what? How is one? How do you become a child like a child of Abraham? Well, you must be saved like Abraham. And how was Abraham saved? 
by faith alone and God alone. Now, for us here today, this, uh, this evening, who have, of course, the full, re- uh, full revelation of God, we, of course, are on this side of the cross. We understand exactly of the, pro- the promise which was to come and came into fruition for, as, and known as Jesus Christ. We know that we are to trust in Christ. But, again, Abraham was given the promise, just like many others, many other, other heroes of the faith in the Old Covenant. He was given the promise he knew that, that a redeemer would come. And that's why Jesus was able to say that Abraham looked forward to this day in what? He was glad. Right? He was rejoicing that Jesus had come. And of course, now that we know, uh, know who the promised one is because he has appeared and we have, of course, all the New Testament, we know that we are to, to be like Abraham. We are to have faith in Christ. But those that were on the other side of the cross, they believed in a promise which was to come, which was Christ. But the real question that we must ask ourselves here, because there's so much focus on being the child of Abraham, that's what Paul's really getting at in his rhetoric in these verses. Then we ask, must ask ourselves, how do we become children of Abraham and therefore children of God? Well, the first thing is that we must have the same faith. We must have the same faith. We must put it in the same place. We must trust God who keeps every promise he makes. We trust him for guidance, believing that he will show us where we should go. To be, again, similar, being in a mold of Abraham, we trust God for what? For providence. Right? We trust God for providence, believing that he will take care of us and whatever we need. We trust God for what? For our deliverance, believing that he will bring us through times of trial. We trust him for everything, just as Abraham did. But most of all, to be a child of Abraham, we trust him for salvation through his son. Through God's Son. When you, whenever you go through the Old Testament, you can constantly see the fingerprints pointing towards Christ. And I always love one uh, Davidic, uh, one Davidic uh, psalm, Psalm 32, where David goes, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and in, in whose spirit is no deceit. What a wonderful psalm. But it reminds you that again,